All right, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And we're just going to read two verses. Just the first two verses, verse 1 and 2. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all these uh, things that we've sung and prayed about already this morning. We thank you for your word. Thank you for these two short verses, God, that give us such amazing news, such amazing hope. And I pray that they would give us hope this morning as we read them that you would fill us with your spirit and illuminate us god to understand your word and what you're truly saying here father in heaven that you would be known and glorified we pray this in jesus name amen within these two short verses first john 2 1 and 2 are contained all the necessary materials needed to accurately construct the biblical gospel. And that's what I hope to do this morning, is to construct the biblical gospel for us to see. And just from these two verses, we have all the stuff we need right here. And as we've seen in 1 John already, John is writing this letter to uh, multiple churches, to one church. So it's likely a cyclical letter. It's one that would be passed around. And he's already said to the churches, who are Christians, but he's reminded, we have a message. So at the beginning of chapter 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, seen, looked, handled, concerning the message of life, the word of life. The life was manifested to us, and we now declare it unto you. So the apostles are the we that he's speaking of, and the apostles are like newsboys who are running around saying, Extra, extra, read all about it. We have news. We have a message. And he's talked about this message that's been revealed in Jesus Christ a general message about God. It's a specific message about God that has come to light because of Jesus Christ. It's the message of the word of life. It's a message that reveals that God is light. It's a message that brings fullness of joy. And in the next two verses here that we've just read, John is going to now give us greater clarity on what this message is. He's going to start putting some real content into that message and tell us exactly what he's talking about. Because when you say, I've got a message, it tells who God is. I've got a message that brings fullness of joy. I've got a message it brings life. Someone's going to ask, well, what is it? Right? Why is it urgent about it? What's this all about? Now we're going to begin to look at what it's all about. Why it's so urgent. But first, let's consider his flow of thought that leads him to this point. Because as we see in verse 1, he starts by saying, These things I write unto you that you sin not. Well, the Apostle John, like the Apostle Paul, anybody who preaches the true gospel, they anticipate a certain reaction. They anticipate a certain objection, or hear a certain objection when it's preached. Paul, uh, when in Romans, if you read Romans, or Paul is explaining the gospel, and he says, you know what? We're all sinners who have fallen short of God's glory. We all are unrighteous. No one is going to be righteous before God by observing the law, right? The law is God's requirements for your conduct, and no one's going to be right with God by trying to make their conduct meet a standard. And the good news, Paul tells us in Romans, is that God has sent his Son... By grace. And he says these blatant statements, these shocking statements, he says, not of works, lest any man should boast. He says that to the man who doesn't work but believes his. And having made the case for the fact that we are just for God without having to do any works whatsoever, there is an objection that arises, right? And they say, well, hold on, hold on. If we are saved by grace, like you're saying, and we do not have to keep any commandments. And it's not about our moral 
conduct whatsoever, then that is going to open a floodgate of sin. See, people conceive like, you know, there's like sin like a dam, like water just wanting to break out. And the only thing that's stopping it is the law. And now Paul's saying, let's take the law out of the way. The floodgates of sin are going to break out and people are going to just go crazy. Of course, that hasn't happened. But that's what is thought. And John now is receiving, he's anticipating that same objection because if you remember, John is now saying that if we say that we have fellowship with God and yet we walk in darkness, then we lie and don't do the truth. But if we simply confess ourselves to be sinners, confess that we have sin, and come into the light, which is the revelation of Christ, and we confess our sins. God is faithful and just. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And as long as we're in the light, then the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. So the message that John is bringing from heaven and from Christ is not stop sinning. It's simply just confess you're a sinner, come to Christ, and you'll be cleansed by the blood of Christ. God is faithful and just to do that. There's no mention of you having to stop any sin. Rather, you just admitting and agreeing with God. And John anticipates here the same reaction. Because if one was to read 1 John chapter 1 and understand what he's saying, they could say, well, John, you're just going to open up the floodgates of sin, and sin is just going to break out in the world, John, because all you're saying is all we have to do is agree with God, come into this message, believe it, and be saved. No stopping of sin, no, necess no necessity for that. John answers in verse 1, My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. What he means is, I'm not writing this so that you'd sin. And every Christian understands that. This is something that every Christian... The objection only comes from those who are in darkness. And we don't understand. Because we know as Christians, yes, the gospel is that we're saved by grace without works. But like, the gospel isn't saying that like, you know, who cares now? You know, just sin. It doesn't make any difference. It's just whatever. Actually, the gospel encourages you to sin. Like, the Christians know that. Christ died on the cross for our sins. Sin is evil in God's sight. So Christians who have come into the light, they don't think that way. We understand that. We ought not to sin. We get that. John says in verse 6 of chapter 2, he reiterates this, he that says he's a, he abides in Christ ought himself to walk even as he walked. And we understand that. It's just, just reasonable service, right? We ought to. However, we know that it's not a must. We know that we not must. We must not sin. That's not how it is. Because if we must not, then there's no more gospel. Right? So it's, it's an objection that comes from the darkness, but not from the light. However, having said all of that, I want to point out that John's main concern here in writing these two verses is not with the objection. Though he answers the objection, he anticipates that kind of reaction, he says, look, I'm not writing these things so that you sin. I'm not writing unto you that you sin. And when he says I'm not writing unto you, he doesn't mean the entire letter. Like, I write this entire letter so that you don't sin. He's saying these things that I write unto you in the last passage, I'm not writing them that you sin. So he does, it, he does answer that kind of an objection and he anticipates it, but that's not his main concern. His main concern is not that we would misunderstand the gospel and take it to mean that now we should just sin. John's main concern is that we would misunderstand the gospel and think that we have to stop sinning. His main concern is not that we abuse grace, but that we don't use grace at all. Brothers and sisters, let's just be honest that uh, what is more common? Hear the gospel, the message of grace, and then say, hey, this is great, now I can just go and sin all I want. Or, and do you feel this within yourself, that you find yourself not even really believing and responding and using at all. You do sin, you feel condemned. And I want to suggest to you that that is the more common thing. And in fact, because we are so saturated by 
thoughts of law, that we know that sin is a conscience. The very few that would presume to think that we should sin now that grace has come. It's always just a slanderous report, like in Romans chapter 3. No one's actually saying that. It's just a slanderous report. However, on the other hand, I've met lots of people, and I know of my own experience, that grace is a lot harder to believe. And this is John's main concern. Look how quickly, having said, I write these things that you sin not, how quickly it suddenly jumps back to, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So if his goal was to say, do not sin, he just shoots himself in the foot again, because he's now saying in even stronger terms that if you sin, you're still okay. That if you sin, you're not condemned. If you're in Christ, if you're out of Christ, this doesn't apply to you. He's writing to believers. You see what I'm saying? He shoots himself in the foot. If, if the main concern that he has is that Christians don't sin and don't abuse grace, then he shoots himself in the foot. And I want to suggest that John's intention in writing this has been misunderstood. And in fact, his true intention is directly the opposite of the typical interpretation that's given to him in this passage. The typical interpretation that's given to John in this passage is summed up by a quote by St. Augustine. I'm going to read that to you, which he gave in his homilies on the epistle of 1 John. And this has just been echoed. We hear it today. But this is what Augustine says when he comments on the verses. Augustine says this, Lest perchance he should seem to give impunity to sin. So he sees that the anticipation, he anticipates the objection. Lest perchance John should seem to have given impunity to sin, and men should now say to themselves, Let us sin, let us do securely what we will, Christ cleanses us. He is faithful and righteous and cleanses us from iniquity. So let us do what we want. Let us sin securely. Okay? That's what he's saying. Augustine is saying, lest that happens. I think John answers the slander, but I don't meet too many people that actually think that way. We're too gripped by law to think that way. John takes from the evil security and he implants useful fear. It is an evil wish of yours to be secure. Anxious, for he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins if you are always displeasing to yourself and being changed until you be perfected. That's Augustine. He says here, and this sums up many people's experience and many people's interpretation of the Bible, it's an evil wish for you to be secure. Be anxious. Augustine believes that's the safety, that's the, that's the dam that's going to keep you from sinning, brothers and sisters. You know what's going to stop you from sinning? Anxiety. Okay? <laughs> and not security. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> that's what most people think. Many people think that. If you give security in Christ to people, you're going to sin. You need to always keep them questioning, always keep them anxious, always keep them uncertain about their salvation, always questioning whether they're really keeping the commandments and doing what they're supposed to be doing, because only then does Christ's blood cleanse you. And brothers and sisters, I do not read this, and I cannot read this in the words of John. What I do read in John's words here is amazing tenderness. Do you take a moment here and notice the tenderness of John. And this tenderness runs all throughout the epistle of John. He says, my little children... These things write I unto you that you sin not. So just to avoid the slander, I'm going to say that. However, this is my main concern. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. He says, if you sin, don't think that means you don't have an interest in Christ and his blood. Just because you sin, don't think that you're not forgiven and that the advocate doesn't advocate for you. In fact, it's because you sin that you need an advocate. You don't need an advocate if you're, if you're doing all the things you're supposed to be doing, right? So look how tender he is. And this is his main concern, that we see grace. 
His tenderness comes from his own experience with Jesus. This very expression, little children, he learned that from Jesus. Jesus uses that expression. You find it in the Gospel of John. Jesus used it when speaking to the disciples. John would have remembered Jesus telling him he was a little child. Now John is saying little children to them. And his tenderness is learned from experience with Christ. Because remember, John has firsthand experience of the gentleness and the patience of Jesus in spite of his own sin. What do we find in the Gospels but the disciples being dull and sinful and missing the point and fighting even amongst themselves, even until the end, denying Christ, forsaking Christ, misunderstanding his teachings. And you find, and John from experience learned the tenderness of Jesus, little children. See, Jesus treated his disciples in the light of his grace. He didn't treat his disciples with the, the hammer of the law. You know, if you mess up, then you are not worthy of me to get lost. Jesus had always before him why he came into the world is to die for sinners like John and, and sinners like me and like you. And so Jesus was tender. And here John is tender with the same tenderness that he learned from the experience of Christ. How could John do otherwise if Christ forgave him so many times over in those three years. I mean, we only have a small and short record, but I'm sure there was lots in there. John even says, if everything Jesus did was written down, the world wouldn't have enough books to contain it, right? I'm sure that in retrospect now, when John's thinking about the way he was before he really understood the gospel, when he was following around Christ, and then he remembers how tender Christ was with all the disciples, I'm sure he saw how sinful he was, how undeserving he was to even be loved by Christ. And so here, John says this. Brothers and sisters, there's no greater verse of comfort in the Bible than 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, when you sin. If you sin, almost instinctively and automatically, you feel condemned by God. Because the devil's your accuser. He accuses you day and night. So his voice comes to you and he says, you sinned. Jesus doesn't save you now. You know, Jesus is gracious to you when you're obeying him, but when you're not, then you're in trouble. God's not happy with you. God's displeased with you. God's angry with you. You need to take a couple weeks off from church from now, you know, until you clean up your life, Bob. Right? Don't touch that Bible, Sinner. I remember when I was, um, at one point in my life, I was so guilt. I was so feeling so guilty of my sin, and I remember I felt like the Bible was just like this holy book I could not touch. You know, and it was good that I felt that at that time because God was working in my life and bringing me to a place to see His grace. But I remember because I couldn't see His grace, I was just seeing my sin. And up to that point, I had I had believed in Christ, but I thought that my relationship with God depended on my performance. If I was doing well, I felt good. If I was doing bad, I felt I was like in big trouble until I promised God I wouldn't do it again. All that stuff. And I remember just God was putting his thumb on me and just showing me my guilt. And you are not going to have a relationship with God. You're not going to have a relationship with me, Eli, based on your performance. He was showing me my sin. And I was realizing at that time, everything that I could do to make up for my sin seemed so vain. You know, like it just was so empty. Like, I could, I could, I could not do that sin for forever, and I'd still feel just guilty. Like it wouldn't go away by doing that, or by praying. I'd pray, and I just felt like my prayers, like my prayers, are not going to convince God to be overlook my sin in any way. I, it was just an awareness of my sin. I remember the Bible seemed untouchable. Any any verse I read was going to be untouchable. But that's not the way that the Christian is to be when he sins. This is what the Christian is to think. Brothers and sisters, let me say it to you now. If any of you sin, if any of you who are believing in Jesus and trusting what he did for you on the cross, sin, and you will, if you do, you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. And men would rob us of this verse. And they'd say, 
If you sin, you're probably not a Christian. If you sin, you're probably not cleansed by the blood. It's the opposite of what John is saying, and you hear it all the time, even from evangelical churches. God wants you to be secure, not anxious. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That's a big thing. That's a big difference. Augustine and many others say, no, God wants you to be anxious, not secure. Because if you're secure, then there's no danger. But it's the opposite. If you're secure, and those who are secure know this, that it's by security in Christ that we are changed. And it's by knowing the love of Christ for us that we fall in love and respond to him. It's by knowing that he doesn't condemn me and that he died for me and that he's my advocate even on my bad day when I sin. He's my advocate because my relationship with him and his forgiveness doesn't depend on my performance, but it depends on his grace and his work on the cross. And when I realize that love that he has for me, that's my dam, in a sense, to borrow the, the analogy. That's what makes me want to obey God. That's what makes me want to follow him and to not sin. You see? So that not sinning isn't out of fear. It isn't out of, oh, I have to do this or else. It's simply out of love. And when John says, my little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not, that's not a threat. That is him calling us to see life from the perspective of love. That's not a threat. He's not threatening. You better not sin. He's saying, look, let's live our lives in love. God has loved us. He has died for us. He has forgiven us. Let's not sin. Let's love God too. Let's love him back. Do you read the Bible like that? There's lots of exhortations in the New Testament. Do you read them as threats? Or do you read them as calls to worship? As a response in love? So here John launches into the explanation of the gospel from this point of view. And he wants his readers, and he wants us to know the gospel. And I'll tell you where he wants us to know it the most. This is the important part of John 2, 1 and 2. He wants us to know the gospel most when we're sinning. When we have sinned, that's when you need to remember the gospel. Because the, it's very likely that the reason you sinned was because you forgot the gospel, right? And if you sin in the place of forgetting the gospel, it's not a good thing. Because if you're forgetting the gospel and you're in sin, then all of a sudden you're going to feel condemned. So when you sin, this is when you need to remember the gospel the most. You don't think to yourself, shoot, I sinned because I was thinking too much about grace. I should have been thinking more about law. The secret of life, the secret of life is not fearful anxiety, but joyful assurance. Okay? Remember that. That's the secret. So let's look at the stuff of the gospel here. The materials that makes up the gospel there's seven terms I want to highlight this morning. We'll just touch on them briefly, some more than others. In, these, uh, in the following verse, in verse 1 and 2, in the following part that we haven't looked at yet, we have seven terms. Sin, Advocate, Father, Jesus Christ, Righteous, Propitiation, and Word. So we're going to look at those seven terms right now. So number one, sin. So here in John he says, if any man sin, that means if you do it, sin is something you commit. Sin is something you do. Alright? And you know when you've done it. Now, in the Greek and the Hebrew, sin is defined as missing the mark. There's a mark that you're supposed to hit. There's a standard you're supposed to meet. And sin is when you do not meet that standard and you miss the mark of what you should do. What is required of you to do. John describes sin in John chapter 3, verse 4 as transgressing the law or breaking the law. He says sin is transgressing the law. Or in the Greek, sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness doesn't mean there's no law. 
Lawlessness means there is a law and you're not abiding by it. You're being lawless. You should be abiding by the law, but you aren't. So this is what sin is. Paul, in the book of Romans, tells us that where there is no law, there is no sin. Romans 4, verse 15. So in order to have sin, one must have a law or some standard that you've broken. And if that law isn't there, there is no sin. Thus, if we sin, it is because we are under some law and we violated it. Adam and Eve is the classic example of sin. Before that commandment came to not eat from the tree, they had no sin. They could not have sinned. But when God said, don't eat from that tree, then when they ate from the tree, they sinned against God. The Bible also goes on to say that all have sinned. Therefore, at one time, we are all under the law at one time. I hear this often. That uh, I hear this often when, when, a, when a Christian is witnessing to a non-Christian about becoming a Christian. Have you ever heard this before? That Christian's like, you need to understand something. When you become a Christian, you're not going to be able to do certain things anymore. You ever, you ever heard that? <laughs> Got to understand now. When you come to Christ, there's things you're not allowed to do anymore. You know, like, there's bad things. Well, hold on. Let's think about it for a sec. Before you were a Christian, you weren't allowed to do that. <laughs> okay? Before you were a Christian, you were under the law. Before you were a Christian, you were condemned for doing those things. And that's actually a false statement to tell a non-believer that if you become a Christian, you're not allowed to do it anymore. They weren't allowed to do it in the first place. That's why they were sinners. That's why they were under condemnation. That's why they were on their way to hell. And Christianity isn't, you know, when you come to Christ, then you're coming back under some law here. Christianity is, look, you're under law. You are condemned. You need salvation. Come to him and be delivered from that. That's Christianity. But at one time, we're all under law. And that's because the God who created us is a lawgiver. That's because the God who created us is moral. And that's one simple attribute of God is that he's not just this infinite blob. You know, He's a person who is righteous, and he's moral, and he's a judge. That's the God that created us with whom we have to do. We didn't make God up. We didn't put morality on him. We put morality on us. We don't impose that conscience on him. He gave us a conscience, and he made us in his image. And being created by a moral God means we're morally accountable for what we do. The moral decisions you make in life are noticed by God and remembered by God and will be judged by God. The Bible says God will bring every work into judgment. And when we sin, we're not sinning against a social norm. We're not sinning against just what is popular, popular thing to do or not do in society, but we're sinning against a conscience that God's given us, and we're sinning against God. Because when we sin, we know we're not supposed to do it, and we know God doesn't want us to do it either. So when we sin, we're sinning against not merely, as A.A. Hodge says in his Outlines of Theology, he says, sin is not, not a mere violation of the law of our Constitution, nor of the system of things, but an offense against a personal lawgiver and moral government. One thing I want to highlight this morning is that when, you, when we talk about sin, law, judgment, forgiveness, gospel, make it personal because it is personal. We're not talking about a system of principles and mathematics. We're talking about a personal God who, when you sin, you're not sinning against just this abstract statute, but you're sinning against a personal God. You're telling God he's a liar. You're, you're doubting the wisdom of God. You're doubting the goodness of God. You're putting yourself above another. It's personal. It's not impersonal. You're violating another person. God. And because God is moral and just, sin cannot go unpunished. Sin cannot go unpunished because God is just. His law demands recompense. Ezekiel 18.4, God says the soul that sins shall die. That's God's word. God's not going to revoke that. The soul that sins shall die. And that cannot be revoked. And so death 
is, as we find in the Bible all over, summed up in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin. But death is not impersonal. Death is not natural. Death is not just some law of physics. Death is personal punishment. Against us, we die. We die because we are the violators and we are the sinners. And our actions reveal who we are. And so if we sin, we're sinners. And if we're sinners, we die. The personal judge sentences us. Advocate. Second one. The advocate. In the Greek, the word is parakletos, and it means to be called to one side to help be called to one side to help. And this word was used in classical Greek often to refer to the lawyer who would come to the defense of a, a person on trial. So it's a defendant. It's someone who is advocating for you. We have one of these. That's the good news that John has to tell you. We have an advocate. We have someone who has come to our side to help us. Why does he come? Because we sin. If any man sin, we have an advocate. We have someone that comes and helps us. And you have it if you're a Christian. It doesn't say we had an advocate, but we have a present help in time of need. That's good news, isn't it? So if you sin, remember, there is an advocate. He is an advocate with the Father. An advocate with the Father, meaning God is, the Father is God. It's referring to the judge. But John calls God here the Father because he's not merely pointing out that God is the judge. God is the judge. So we need an advocate with the judge. But guess who the judge is? It's good news. God is your, the judge is your Father. We have an advocate with the Father. And John says the Father because he's what he what he's trying to express here. Now, the idea of God being our Father was a pagan idea, also. Okay, it's not exclusively Christian, but the fatherhood of God in paganism had to do with the fact that God created, or the gods created all things, and so in that sense, they have a relationship that is like a father to creation on mass. The whole of creation, that's God, the gods are the father of that. But it's not personal. It's corporate. And it's not rich in its Christian content of what father is. But it's simply the fact that he creates it and takes care of creation. Gods create and take care of creation corporate. But the fatherhood of God in Christianity is different. It's rooted in the divinity. It's rooted in the trinity. It's rooted in the fact that Father has a son. Okay, so when you think about the fatherhood of God, you don't immediately think of creation. Now that's included in there. Certainly, God is the father because he's the creator of all things and he cares for his creation. But primarily, we think of the father's relationship with the son. And if God is your father, if you have become adopted through faith in Jesus Christ, because at one time you're without God. The Bible never says that God is your father if you're not a Christian, that you're a child of God. It's popular here in Utah to say that, right? But the Bible tells us that when you become a Christian, God adopts you to be his child, and you become a child of your father in heaven. But when you can say, brothers and sisters, that God is your father, you're essentially saying that God, you have the same relationship to God that the father has with his son. So we learn what fatherhood is from the father's relationship with the son, and it's expressed to individuals. It's an individual person. It says we have an advocate with the father, but John doesn't want us to think that there's a good cop, bad cop thing going on here. You know, that Jesus being the advocate steps in between God, the judge, and makes the case. But I want you all to know that God himself, the father, he has provided the advocate for you. Okay? God has provided the advocate. Not we ourselves. If 
any of you get arrested and have to go to court? Who has to provide the, uh, the defendant, the lawyer? You do, right? Now, the state will provide one if you can't, right? But you're the one who's typically supposed to look for one and find one. But if you can't, they'll provide one for you. But the state provides that for you, not the judge, right? Could you imagine if the judge comes off the bench and he provides an advocate for you? We have an advocate with the Father from the Father. God is not a bad cop. He calls Christ to our side. Jesus Christ, moving on. He is our advocate. So if the question is, well, who's the advocate? Who's your advocate, Wallace? It's Jesus Christ, right? When you sin. 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus shows up in history. But what makes him special is that he's the Christ. He's the one that God promised. And he's God in the flesh. He himself came to be our advocate. He's called the righteous, meaning he's totally without sin. He's personally righteous, and he is what God requires. He's fit to be our advocate. As the author of Hebrews says, if you want to just flip there, Hebrews chapter 6, verse or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, tells us about Jesus, our advocate. Keep your finger in 1 John. Hebrews 7, 26. And it's talking about Jesus. Well, why don't we go back one verse? Let's look at 25. It says about of Christ, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. That's our advocate. He's different than you, but he's like you. You need to have an advocate that's like you so he can understand you. But you also need to have an advocate that's not like you, because if he was a sinner, he'd need his own advocate. Right? But Jesus Christ is both of those things. He's both like us and he understands us, but he's also unlike us in that he's righteous. Now let's look at this now. How does the advocate plead our cause, brothers and sisters? How does the advocate plead your cause? Does he say, God, I don't think you should judge this one because he's been, he's been good ever since he did that sin. Does God, does the advocate Christ appeal to Tom Grant's goodness to get Tom off the hook? How does the advocate plead our cause? Not by pleading our goodness, not by pleading our innocence, you know, in our in our court now, you're going to go in there, and the, the lawyer's going to try to say, "Oh, he wasn't. He's innocent, Your Honor. How does he plead? He pleads innocent. He pleads innocent, Your Honor." So then the, the lawyer tries to make a case that the that the 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 accused, the client, is innocent. Right? That's one way. What's another way? Is insane, Your Honor. It was ex, extenuating circumstances, Your Honor. The circumstances were in such a way that he did this, give him a break. Is that the way that Jesus pleads our cause? Your Honor, he's insane. Alan is insane, Your Honor. <laughs> give him a break. It's the circumstances, Your Honor. you got to understand. I say, this is not how God pleads your case. This is not how Christ pleads your case. This is how many of us plead our case, though, even within our own hearts with God. You know, when you sin, do you find yourself trying to become your own advocate? Sometimes I do. I sin and I start immediately praying to God, oh, God is the circumstances. I'm just, I'm just insane, God. Just give me a break here. Why do I do that? Why, why do I feel compelled to try to justify myself before God? That's not going to help me. God knows me better than I know myself. And I'm feeling guilty and I'm 
now telling God he's a liar. I haven't sinned, God. Brothers and sisters, the way to find forgiveness and peace with God is not by trying to play advocate with yourself. It's not by pleading insanity. It's not by pleading innocent, which is how we instinctively feel that's the only way we're going to get out of it. You know, The only way I'm going to get out of punishment here is if I try to make myself look better. This is the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is confess your sins. Just acknowledge you're guilty. Jesus Christ will be your advocate. And you know what he pleads? Not your goodness, your innocence, or your circumstances. But notice in verse 2 it says, He is the propitiation for our sins. This is what he pleads before God. It is propitiation. He himself as the propitiation. Your honor, this man, yes, he committed this crime or these crimes. I am the propitiation for his sins. That's how he pleads our case. Propitiation is one of the most important words in the entire Bible. What does propitiation mean? Because to understand propitiation truly is to understand the gospel and the heart of God. And to not understand propitiation is to miss out on knowing the gospel and God. Webster defines propitiation this way. And I choose this because it sums up the different definitions of propitiation. Propitiation is the act of appeasing wrath and conciliating the favor of an offended person. That's a simple definition of propitiation. So there's wrath involved. There's wrath involved and something needs to be done to take that wrath away to restore a relationship. Propitiation is that which affects the appeasing of wrath and the reconciliation. So it's different than reconciliation. Reconciliation is when the two parties do come back together in relationship. Propitiation is what removed the cause for wrath so that reconciliation could happen. But here's the difficulty. The pagan view of propitiation, okay? The pagan view of propitiation in Paul's day was that we have to appease the gods because they're angry. They're ticked off with us. You know, we've all done things, and the gods are just really mad. So what we're going to do is we're going to offer sacrifices. We're going to offer our own children. We're going to offer our lives. We're going to do all these things to try to make the gods not angry at us. Well, that's propitiation. They're trying to appease the wrath of the gods. However, many Christians look at that, and they rightly say, that's disgusting, and that's not, that's not Christianity. What they do is in throwing out the pagan view of propitiation, they throw out altogether the biblical view of propitiation. And they begin to say that the gospel has nothing to do with appeasing God's wrath whatsoever. Jesus didn't die on the cross to appease an angry God. That's pagan. That's so pagan, you know? Like God's angry, we're just, God, be nice to us, God. Change your opinion of this, God. Change your disposition. Be kind. Here's all these sacrifices. They're like, Jesus didn't do that. And so, in reacting against the pagan view and, and discarding themselves of that erroneous view, which I agree is wrong, they throw out the biblical view of wrath and propitiation altogether. And the cross then becomes nothing more than, well, there's many different explanations for the cross that become unbiblical. He just died as a martyr. There's no wrath at all in that. God is emotionless when it comes to the cross. What the Bible teaches us is, in fact, that God, his wrath, is revealed against all sin. Make no mistake about it, my friends, that if we're going to be biblical, we cannot escape the fact as we read the Bible, that God is a God of wrath. That God does get angry. The prophets, when they talk about the anger of God against our sin, they couldn't have said it more plainly. 
They, they couldn't have said it in such a way that that they said it in such a way that reveals to us that God gets angry when we sin. And he is a God of wrath. And that's because he's righteous. And it's personal. And he's not emotionless. But this is what we need to remember. And this is where the reacting Christians go wrong. And this is where they miss it. How is Christian propitiation different than pagan propitiation? It is in this. And listen carefully. Christian propitiation is different because of this. God is a God of wrath. No doubt about it. But wrath isn't the final word about God. God is a God of wrath. But God is a God of mercy. And God, by his own mercy, turns away his own That's what propitiation is all about. So far from us trying to change God's attitude and saying, God, be nice to us. God, be willing to save us. God, look with favor upon us. God himself, who is wrathful against sin, but is also mercy, he himself provides propitiation for us. And he himself turns away his own wrath for our sake. So God is angry, but he's more than angry. He's loving. Yes, sin needs to be dealt with. But the atonement of Jesus Christ doesn't change God's disposition towards us because it's always been love and mercy. In fact, the atonement of Christ is, as the Bible says, the demonstration of God's love and mercy. It's not trying to turn God around so that he'd be loving and mercy. It's God in his love and mercy turning his own wrath away from us. Isn't that beautiful? 2,000 years ago, God sent us our advocate so that now in the 21st century when you sin, God's wrath has been turned away from you. Otherwise, it would burn hot against you. 2,000 years ago, God sent his own son, whom he loved, into the world, who put on flesh and blood, who was righteous and sinless, and he died upon the cross as a propitiation for our sins. His death on the cross dealt with sin so that God's wrath against sin would be turned away. So that God could forgive us of our sins. And God now sees the Lamb in heaven now before the throne of God above. Because we sang. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and he ever pleads for me. There's a Lamb who is slain in heaven. Commentator David Smith says, Our advocate does not plead that we are innocent or induce extenuating circumstances. He acknowledges our guilt and prevents his, presents his vicarious work as the ground of our acquittal. He stands in the court of heaven, and the marks of his sore passion are a mute but eloquent appeal. I suffered all this for sinners, and shall it go for nothing? Charles Spurgeon said, My soul, you have a friend well fitted to be your advocate. He cannot but succeed. Leave yourself entirely in his hands. If you sin, you have an advocate. Trust in the Lamb who is slain, who right now before the throne of God, not was your propitiation, but is the propitiation for your sins, presently right now. As the Lamb, who turns away God's wrath from everyone who believes in him. And in closing, who does this apply to? You know, as Christians, we know this, right? We believe in it, we trust in it, we have peace of conscience in the Lamb. But notice that John says at the end, this is not for our sins only. He is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but for the whole world. And notice the universal terms in this passage. He says, if any man sins, he uses the word any. He says, not only for ours, not only, but for the sins of the whole world. John himself needed the propitiation. He says he's the propitiation for our sins, but not only for our, ours, brothers and sisters, but for the sins of the whole world. The propitiation is as wide as the sin of the world. Martin Luther said, it is a patent fact 
that you too are a part of the whole world so that your heart cannot deceive itself and think the Lord died for Peter and Paul but not for me. Believe it. Believe it today that Jesus Christ, the righteous, is the propitiation for your sins. So in answer to the question, why is this so urgent? It's because he's the propitiation for your sins. If you don't believe this, you have no propitiation. It's there. You're not, you're not exercising upon it. You're not using it. You don't have an interest in it. You're not believing. And if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, then the Bible says the wrath of God remains on you. If you die without believing in Christ, you have no advocate. You'll stand naked before God on judgment day. He'll judge you for your sins. And without an advocate, you perish. If you plead innocent, if you plead insanity, if you plead your own goodness, you will not pass the judgment day. You are a liar, and his word is not your own. Believe this if you have not believed it. Christ died for you. You are a sinner, and that's what it's all about. Believe it and be saved. And experience security in Christ. Joyful assurance that even when you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Because God, without this propitiation and without an advocate, we would perish. Thank you for loving us so much, even though we deserve just your wrath. Thank you for providing an advocate for us with you, Lord. Thank you for revealing who you are through this. And thank you for giving us security. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who feels guilty and is looking for peace and security and assurance, God, I pray that they would simply find it in the blood of Christ, and not in their own goodness and performance. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who is not a Christian, who has not believed the gospel, God, may they hear the message this morning, and may they believe it. And we give you glory, God. We acknowledge you. You're the author of all these things. We praise you in Jesus' name.